Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Well, would you please bow your heads with me? And let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and want to speak to us. And Lord, would you instruct us this morning? Give us hearts that are ready to receive. And Lord, that there would be fertile soil for the seed of your Word. Lord, that it would, it would take root in our hearts and that it would produce much good fruit for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was single, before I was married, I lived in a two-bedroom apartment. I lived in Hungary, and I lived in a two-bedroom apartment with four other guys. And for, for most of us, it was our first time living on our own, away from family, right, with not having anybody in the house who made rules for us or told us what to do. And living with those four guys in that two-bedroom apartment, I learned some very important lessons about life. One of the guys I lived with, he used to come home from work, and the first thing he would do is he would take off all of his work clothes, and that's all. Like, he would just take him off, and for the rest of the evening, he would just walk around in his underwear, which was not my favorite, um, especially when I started bringing my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, around the house. I, I mean, what's funny is I would tell him, hey, I'm bringing my girlfriend over. He'd be like, okay, cool. And he wouldn't do anything. <laughs> he still just continued uh, walking around in his underwear. The other thing he liked, other than walking around in his underwear, he really liked onions. And he liked cooking with onions, particularly frying onions. So no matter what he was eating, he always fried onions to go with it. And the only utensil that he used, both for cooking and for consuming food was this like pocket knife that he carried around with him all the time. And, uh, and so he also had one other love, and that was smoking cigarettes. So he would just go in the kitchen in his underwear and cook onions and smoke cigarettes every night. And I can't tell you how many times I heard him scream in pain in the kitchen because he had burned himself either with the oil from the onions or with the cigarettes that he was smoking. And what I learned from this man was... Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, okay? Just because you can cook onions and smoke in your underwear doesn't mean you should. The other lesson I learned living with these fellows was that just because you don't have to do something doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So, so conversely, just because you don't have to do something doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Another one of my roommates, he had heard somewhere that if you don't shower for a month, that your hair and your skin begin to naturally cleanse themselves. And he thought, that's a great idea. Then I'll never have to shower again, as if that's apparently the goal of life, right? So he, he decided, I'm going to try this out. He was a single guy, and he was unemployed, so it was perfect. And uh, for, the, for the rest of us who lived in the apartment, though, we bore the brunt of his little experiment. And let's just say it did not work, okay? If any of you have, have heard that rumor, it's not true. And, and what we learned from this man was something very valuable. Just because you don't have to do something, right? Like, just because you don't have to shower doesn't mean you shouldn't, right? Even if just for the sake of others. One of my other roommates... One time I had to go into his room and find something, and I just smelled this terrible smell. The smell was rotten milk, because this guy liked to drink a glass of milk before bed. But oftentimes, he didn't finish the milk, and he never cleaned his room. 
You know, it's not against the law to not clean your room. Like, you don't have to clean your room, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, okay? See, in the same way, when it comes to Christianity and following Jesus, many of these same principles apply. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should necessarily do it. And sometimes, even though you don't have to do something, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. One of the most famous parables that Jesus ever taught was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it tells the story of a man who was robbed and beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road. And several people walked by this man and they said to themselves, that's not my problem. I'm not required to help that man. There's nothing that says I have to do that. And yet, a Samaritan man came, a man who was despised in that society. And he stopped and he helped the man. He nursed him to health at his own expense, even though he didn't have to, even though he wasn't obligated to do it. And Jesus told this parable. And at the end of it, he said, you go and do likewise. Now, the setting for this story is that someone had come to Jesus and asked him a question. The question was, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response was this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But this man with whom Jesus was talking, he responded, and he said, but wait a second. Who exactly is my neighbor? Like, like, who's the definition of my neighbor? Think, think about what he wants to know. Listen, is it, is it just my next door neighbor, right? What if I live on the corner and I only have one neighbor next to me, right? Is it just that guy? Is it people within a two block radius? I need to know because I need to understand who exactly it is that I'm obligated to help. You see, that's the, that's the question he's asking. Think about it. What he's asking is, I need to know exactly what God requires me to do because I don't want to do anything more than what I am absolutely required to do. You can just imagine somebody like that saying, well, I'm not required to love this person because according to this definition, this person isn't technically my neighbor. It's the attitude that says, I will do what is required of me, but I won't do anything more. And if I don't have to do something, I'm not going to do it. And Jesus tells this man a story about somebody who was beaten up, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. And two people walked past that man. Both of them saw that he was in need, and they had the ability to help him, but they chose not to because they said to themselves, that's not my problem. I'm not required to help that person. But the third person who came by, the Samaritan, he stopped to help the man even though he didn't have to, even though he wasn't required to, even though what had happened to that man was, if you will, not his problem. The Samaritan stopped and he used his strength to help that man in his weakness. And through this story, Jesus explained something. He explained, your neighbor is anybody who God brings across your path. And to love your neighbor is to do for them as God has done for you. Because think about it, God used his strength and ability to help you in your weakness and need. Not because he had to, but as an act of love. And Jesus ends this story by saying, now you go and do likewise. The attitude of this man who asked this question, well, who technically is my neighbor? It's a very common attitude, right? It can be found in, in all of us at certain times, I think. We often want to know, okay, so, so where's the line? Like, what exactly am I required to do? What exactly does God require that I do technically, right? 
And many times our goal is to do the minimum that God requires, or it's to get away with the maximum that we can get away with without getting on God's bad side, if you will. You know, I, I get these kind of questions a lot on this call-in radio show that I host. You know, some of the questions I get are pretty interesting. People, they'll call in a lot and they ask, you know, is it technically a sin to do this or that? Or they, they might ask me, does the Bible actually require that you have to go to church or you have to uh, read the Bible or you have to give money or you have to pray, right? These are the kinds of questions they ask. But I want you to see that Jesus gives us a completely different grid, a completely different set of questions, a completely different approach to life and relationship with God. Rather than asking, okay, where's the line? What am I required to do? What do I have to do? Jesus says this. How about instead we just ask this? How do you love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength? And how do you love your neighbor as yourself? You see, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is going to help us apply this principle to our lives. The title of today's message is, Do All to the Glory of God. And what we're going to see in this passage, here's our summary statement, our one-sentence summary, our, our takeaway truth. It's our outline for studying the passage today. I encourage you, write it down in your notes. Take it with you as you go. Whatever you have to do to remember this for this coming week, here's the point of this passage. Rather than asking how much you can get away with, as followers of Jesus, we seek to do all things to the glory of God. So rather than asking how much you can get away with, as followers of Jesus, we seek to do all things to the glory of God. So let's take that sentence and let's break it down as we study this passage. The first part, rather than asking how much you can get away with. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle is continuing a discussion which began back in chapter 8. And this discussion is about the question of whether it was okay for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. This is a very relevant issue in that day, but the principles that are found in this issue are very relevant for us today. You see, a few years prior to Paul writing this letter here in 1 Corinthians, a few years prior to him writing this letter, in Acts chapter 15, we read about that there was a council of apostles and early church leaders who met in Jerusalem, and they made a determination. They came to a decision about a pressing social issue of the day, and their determination was that Christians should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, they had several reasons why they made this determination, and the apostle Paul was actually part of that group of people who made that decision and issued that statement. But now, certain people in the Corinthian church were pushing back against this rule. Here's what they said. They said, we should be able to eat whatever we want, including meat sacrificed to idols. And here was their reason. The reason was because in Corinth, where most of the people in the city were pagans, the meat that it was sacrificed to idols was, it was higher quality and it was lower price. Furthermore, many of the temples had restaurants. So if you wanted to go out for a meal at an affordable price, that was where you went, was to the temples. Furthermore, if you went to a regular meat market, there was no way of knowing which meat had been sacrificed to idols and which meat hadn't been sacrificed to idols. So maybe you would end up eating it on accident. 
And if you got invited over to somebody else's house for dinner, there's a good chance that the meat they're serving you has probably been sacrificed to idols. And so for the people in Corinth, this rule that was made by some other people in a different city, different setting in Jerusalem, they looked at this rule and they said, this is very impractical for our lives here in Corinth. It's very, it makes our lives unnecessarily complicated. And so some of the Corinthians were pushing back and they were saying, this is a dumb rule and we're not going to follow it. We have the right to eat whatever we want because as Christians, we know that there's only one true God, right? These so-called gods that people worship in the pagan temples, they don't really exist. They're made up. They're fictional. They're fake. They aren't even real. And so why should we be worried of whether our meat has been sacrificed to something that doesn't even exist? We should have the right to eat that meat if we want to. And so in chapters 8 through 10 here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to their protest and he's explaining why the Corinthians should follow this rule that was set out by the Jerusalem council and not eat meat sacrificed to idols. In chapter 8, Paul explained that they should do it for the sake of those who are weaker in their understanding of these theological matters. In chapter 9, Paul explained that we as Christians have a higher calling than just living for ourselves. And now here in chapter 10, Paul's going to give them one more reason why they should avoid meat sacrificed to idols. And that is because they should steer clear of anything associated with idolatry or ungodliness. And instead, they should pursue God wholeheartedly. Here's what he says in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, here's what Paul's doing. He's looking back to the history of Israel as a cautionary tale for us who live today. The history of Israel and bring it to us as a cautionary tale to warn us lest we make the same mistakes that the people of Israel made during this period called the Exodus. The Exodus is that period of time in Israel's history where they came out of slavery in Egypt and God was leading them toward the promised land. You can read about this in the books of Exodus and the books of Numbers. So Exodus and Numbers tell the story of the Exodus. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he led them first with a cloud. That's how he showed them where to go. They had never been out of Egypt. They didn't know how to get where they needed to go. They didn't have compasses. And so God led them by a cloud in the desert. And then God caused the Red Sea to part before them, and they crossed over, which protected them from the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. And then in the desert, God fed them miraculously with bread from heaven called manna, and he fed them with water from a rock. And what Paul is saying here is this. He says, look, what God did for Israel in the Exodus was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of what God does for us now in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, he has set us free from slavery and bondage to sin and death. As believers, we are baptized into Christ. And in Jesus, we are sustained by the bread of life and by his living water. And yet, Paul says, even though Israel experienced the exodus, even though they had a privileged position as the people of God, yet most of them never entered the promised land. And the reason is because 
during the Exodus, they turned away from God. And the way they turned away from God is what really is important here. The way they turned away from God was little by little, by dabbling in things that they had no business dabbling in, dabbling in idolatry, you know, just starting to flirt with wickedness, kind of starting to dip their toes into the water of these evil things. And before they knew it, they were fully immersed in them and it led to their downfall. That's what Paul's warning them against. So Paul is telling the Corinthians and us, he says, look, just because you go to church, just because you've been baptized, just because you take communion, you would still be wiser to steer clear of anything that has anything to do with sin or ungodliness. Just steer clear from it. Paul says in verse 6, Now these things that happened to Israel, they took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And now from verses 7 through 10, Paul gives us four examples of things that happened during the Exodus where Israel flirted with wickedness and it led to their demise. In verse 7, the first example, he says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That line, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, it's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 32, which is the story of how while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the people down below in the valley built a golden calf and began to worship it instead of the Lord. The next example he gives is in verse 8. He says, we must not indulge sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now this is a reference to Numbers chapter 25 which tells the story of how Israel at one point got involved in the worship of a God named Baal, which included sexual immorality. And as a result, 23,000 fell in one day. The third example in verse 9 is, it says, we must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by serpents. Now that's referring to Numbers chapter 21, where the people were complaining about the circumstances they were in. And in the process, they began to blaspheme the, the Lord. The fourth example in verse 10 says, nor should we grumble as some did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now this is a reference to Numbers 16, where some of the people led a rebellion to overthrow Moses as their leader. Now, listen, in each of these cases, despite Israel's privileged position, despite all the things that they had experienced in God setting them free, they dabbled in wickedness, and it didn't end well. And Paul says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, the Corinthian Christians considered themselves to be pretty strong spiritually. In their minds, they were impervious to temptation. They thought, we can go into the pagan temples and we can buy meat and we can sit down and eat a meal there in the pagan temple and we won't be tempted, right? We won't succumb to the temptation to get involved in that pagan stuff or that immoral thing, in the immoral things that take place there. And Paul says, watch out. Watch out. Pride comes before a fall. You may think you can handle it, but it is better to be wise and cautious than to be proud and foolish. 
You know, maybe there are some of you here today, and this is something you need to hear. This is something you need to pay attention to. Maybe you have let your guard down in certain areas in your life because you feel that you're pretty strong, that that temptation won't get to you. Because, you know, you would say, you're no longer being cautious like you used to be in some areas of your life because you think you've got a good handle on it. You're strong enough to handle it. You're confident that you can dip your toes into the water just a little without succumbing to temptation because you're strong enough to withstand it. God's word would tell you here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, watch out. It's not wise to think that you can play with fire and not get burned. On the other hand, verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Now, this is really good news. What this means is that when you are tempted to sin, you can actually say no. You can say no by the power of of Jesus in you, you can say no to sin and you can say yes to God. God gives you in Christ that strength and that ability. Now listen, sometimes you might feel like a temptation is so powerful, so strong that you cannot withstand it. But God's promise to you is that in him, by his power, there is always a way of escape. But you have to be willing to take it. You have to be willing to take it. Sometimes that way of escape will mean leaving a certain location. Sometimes it might mean calling a friend on the phone and saying, hey, I need to talk to you. Here's what I'm going through. Whatever the temptation is, God promises that he will be faithful to provide you with a way out if you are willing to take it. So Paul sums up this point here in verse 14 where he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The reason the Corinthian Christians should avoid meat sacrificed to idols is because they should avoid anything that has any connection to idolatry or wickedness. In other words, rather than seeing that, rather than trying to see how close they can get without actually sinning, Paul is urging them to get away from this stuff as far as they possibly can. This is such an important, relevant principle for us today. Because I think many times the way we approach things is that exact way. We want to know, where's the line? How close can I get to the line without crossing it? How much can I do without technically sinning? I've had people ask me, they'll say things like, you know, I know I shouldn't get drunk, but like how buzzed can I get, right? Like, like or, or I like this one. I was asked one time, so what technically constitutes adultery, right? Like, like what technically constitutes an affair? Listen, if you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong, you're, you're going the wrong way. Listen, it, rather than trying to see where's the line and how close can I get to it without actually transgressing, what God's word is telling us is, look, rather than trying to get as close as you can without, without crossing that line or without sinning, instead, Make it your goal to get as far away from that stuff as you possibly can. Flee from it like you would run away from a live grenade. And he says, listen, God will help you when you're tempted. But that doesn't mean that you should dabble in things that cause destruction and harm. It is better to just have nothing to do with those things whatsoever. And now in verses 15 through 30, Paul is going to address 
three common scenarios that someone in Corinth might face regarding meat sacrificed to idols and what to do in each of those circumstances or situations. Okay, so here's the first scenario, starting in verse 15. The scenario is whether you should eat meat or whether you can eat meat uh, that has been sacrificed to idols in a temple, right? Like, can you go to a temple restaurant and eat a meal there? Here's what Paul says in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul is talking here about the practice of communion. And he's saying, when we take communion, we are communing with God and we are united together as people who worship Jesus. Look what he says in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What he's referring to here is a specific sacrifice. It's mentioned in the book of Leviticus. It's called the fellowship offering. Okay, so a fellowship offering was kind of like a big party. You would bring an animal to the temple and you would invite your family and friends to come around. And as that animal was sacrificed, the meat was on the altar and they would take that meat off the altar before it was completely burned up and you would have it. It'd be like a big barbecue party with your family and friends in the temple courtyard. And what it communicated was you were celebrating the fact that you had fellowship with God and fellowship with other people who also loved God. So that was the point of the fellowship offering that Paul's talking about here. So think about what Paul's saying. He's saying this. If communion is having fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. If the fellowship offering of the Old Testament was about fellowship with God and fellowship with people who worship God, then think about what you're doing when you go to a pagan, pagan feast, when you eat at a pagan temple. He says, basically, think about it. It's like taking pagan communion. Do you want to do that? You want to go take pagan communion? And he says in verse 19 and 20, what am I implying? That food offered to idols is anything? or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. So earlier, Paul told us that other gods don't actually exist. There's only one God, the true God, the Lord. And yet Paul says, behind these idols that people worship, behind these pagan deities that people worship, even though they don't exist, there is a demonic influence promoting these things. There's a demonic influence um, inspiring these things. These pagan gods are demonically inspired in an attempt to keep people from worshiping the one true God. So on the one hand, these so-called gods don't actually exist. But on the other hand, there is a spiritual element to what's happening there, and it's demonic in origin. Verse 21 and 22, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So to answer the question, should Christians ever eat in a temple restaurant, Paul says, no way, right? There's no way that that should ever be acceptable. That's like participating in communion at a pagan temple. 
that's something that's demonically inspired. He says, no way. You should just have nothing to do with that. Okay, here's scenario number two. What about buying meat in the marketplace? Well, before Paul goes any further, he reminds us of the underlying principles that are at work here. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Look, just like I learned living with those roommates, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you necessarily should do that thing. As followers of Jesus, we also have a higher calling than just living to serve ourselves. Instead, we seek to use our lives to help other people take their next step in trusting Jesus and following him. So what do we do with meat in the marketplace? Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That phrase, the earth of the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that's a quote from the Psalms, but it's also what every traditional Jewish family would pray before their meal. When they would say uh, a prayer before their meal, they would say that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So Paul is telling people to buy the meat, not from the temples, buy it from the meat markets. But even if you buy it from the meat markets, you might not be 100% sure that it hasn't been sacrificed to idols. So what should you do? Paul says, just don't ask. Because you're not worried about it defiling you. You're worried about the conscience of the person who, who you're buying it from. And so if, if you don't know and you don't ask, he says, then you're free to just give thanks and eat that meat. But, but what about in the third scenario? What about when somebody invites you over for dinner at their house? If an unbeliever, verse 25, invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean for your conscience, but for his. So if you get invited to someone's house for dinner, don't ask them, where the meat was from. But if they come out and tell you, hey, this is from the temple, or hey, this was sacrificed to an idol, then Paul says, then politely refuse to eat it because that would send them a confusing message. If they believe that the idols are true gods, then it would be confusing for them. You know, they might mistakenly think that you are condoning or participating in pagan worship and sacrifice. And Paul says, it's just not worth it. Just don't uh, you don't want to communicate the wrong thing, so just politely excuse yourself and don't eat it. So that brings us to the next and final part of our sentence. Rather than asking how much you can get away with, as followers of Jesus, we seek to do all things to the glory of God. Paul brings the discussion to a close by saying this, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The purpose of our lives is not to see how much we can get away with and still be Christians. The, the goal and the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and to help other people grow in relationship with him. 
And so rather than trying to ride that line, right, and always asking, riding that line of what God allows or doesn't allow, or what God forbids or doesn't forbid, or what God requires or doesn't require, and trying to get as close to that line as you can without crossing over. Instead, Jesus gives us a whole new way of approaching life, a whole new set of questions to ask, a whole new grid to run things through. Here's what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. When you're doing that, you realize that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you necessarily should. And just because you don't have to do something doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily do it. But now, right, we're no longer living in the realm. We're no longer being driven by can'ts and don'ts and have-tos and ought-tos. Instead, in everything we do, we're being driven by a desire to please and glorify God and a desire to help other people grow in relationship with him. That becomes our new grid for making decisions. Does this action please God? Does it glorify God? Does it help others or does it hinder others around me from seeing Jesus clearly and desiring to follow him? If it brings glory to God and it helps other people, then do it. If it doesn't, then don't. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it isn't just a nice story about a nice guy who did a nice thing. I think that's how we often think of it. We think, oh, okay, Jesus is telling us uh, to be nice people who do nice things. But you need to understand that from the very earliest days of Christianity, Christians who heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, they understood that it wasn't just a nice story about a nice guy who did a nice thing. Rather, it was a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Think about it. That man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead. You know who that is? That's you. That's me. That's us, right? That is the effect that sin and this world has had upon us. It has robbed us and left us beaten up and helpless and left for dead on the side of the road. That man bleeding on the side of the road, you understand, he is unable to help himself. He can't just pick himself up and fix his problem. What he needs is a savior. He needs someone to come along who is not only able to help him, but who is willing to help him. We need someone to rescue him. And the question is, who would ever be able to do that on the one hand? And the other hand, who would be willing to do something like that? It would require someone who not only had the ability, but who was also willing to help. Someone who wouldn't just walk by and say, that's not my problem. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that God looked upon you in your state and he did not say, that's not my problem. That's the good news of the gospel. God looked at you. And in the person of Jesus, God didn't say, that's not my problem, but rather he came to you and lovingly served you by doing for you what you could not do for yourself in order to save you. And he did it at infinite cost to himself. He gave his life the ultimate act of love in order to redeem you so you could be forgiven and reconciled to God and receive the hope of eternal life. And the way you receive that hope is by trusting in and, and clinging to and relying on Jesus Christ and what he did for you to save you. And once you've received that gift of salvation, Jesus then says to you what he said at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember? Now you go 
and do likewise. In the ways that he has loved you, now you go and do likewise towards others. Friends, rather than asking how much you can get away with, as followers of Jesus, we seek to do all things to the glory of God. Please stand with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.